Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dagish America Presents. I am your host, Ben Harl, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined us. Last episode, we talked with Bob Warren about stored product pests and how to gauge when it's time to fumigate. There are a lot of variables that play a part in deciding when it's time to take action, and I'm really glad that Bob and I had a chance to discuss those options. If you haven't had a chance yet, please feel free to go back and give that episode a listen. I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, in these next few episodes, we're going to talk about the three most prevalent fumigants used in the United States. Phosphine, sulfuryl fluoride, and methyl bromide. Did you know that phosphine is one of the most widely used fumigants? Phostoxin fumigant was created by Dagish scientists in 1951 and granted a U.S. FIFRA registration in 1958. There are also a few different types of products on the market that utilize phosphine as their active ingredient, and each of these products have some pretty specific differences. Today, we've invited Herb Yaman, president of Dagish America, to join us to discuss phosphine. Herb's worked for Dagish for 37 years, and considering Dagish America is the only U.S. manufacturer of metal phosphide products, he has loads of experience with the molecule. I'm so glad that we're going to get an opportunity to pick his brain when it comes to phosphine use in the United States. So, please help me welcome Herb to the podcast. Herb, welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ben. Appreciate it. Yeah, glad you glad to, I was able to get to sit down with you and pick your brain about phosphine. I think this is going to be fun. Well, we'll, we'll hope. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, I've got some information worth sharing. Oh, I know you do. I know you do. So, uh, I want to start out just uh, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know who you are. I just want to start out by just giving you an opportunity to kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, your history with the company, and who you work for, and so on. So. Okay. Well, I give you a little bit of background. Many, many moons ago. Back in my college days, I actually had a summertime job working with a local fumigation company. It was a mother pop operation that uh, fumigated tobacco warehouses. So hot, nasty work, but paid well. And as a college student, that's what you're looking for. So uh, as I moved on and graduated from college, uh, I walked out with a degree in biology. And I found a job with the Virginia Department of Agriculture and became a state food inspector, which actually entailed quite a bit of responsibilities, but uh, we were farmed out to FDA uh, through grants to the state in order for them to help gain coverage into the food processing areas that were in the state of Virginia. So my, my background came from there, but uh, as time went on and uh, the, the government associations and relationships became much more strained, then I had an opportunity to come back to the fumigation world, but not as a fumigator, as an inspector to conduct sanitation audits within uh, the tobacco industry. So the idea then, and this was many years ago, close to 35 now, uh, they wanted to be treated as if they were food establishments and they wanted the unjaundiced view of someone who had done that type of work to come in there and, and review their processing operations and to uh, issue an unofficial report, but uh, they took it quite seriously in-house, which really took them light years ahead of where they are today, which they are now under the jurisdiction of FDA. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. inter interesting full circle. So. Uh, during my, uh, my years as uh, their inspector, uh, the opportunity came for additional areas of, uh, of expertise from the Degish America group, which would include fumigation services. 
So not only did we supply them with fumigate, but then we began to actually supply them with the services to apply those fumigates. And they appreciated the fact that we were not only registrants, but service providers. And so we could cover a lot of territory for them. And to this day, I'm proud to say that we are still employed in the world of tobacco fumigations, as well as many other areas of fumigations. The company I started with was bought by the German group, the Dietsch-Degisch group, and they in turn purchased a few other smaller uh, operations, which were in the service business. So that's how we expanded as well into uh, the grain uh, applications. Uh, a lot of uh, ocean-going vessel in-transit fumigations. So uh, time progresses and we still continue to, uh, to hold our head above water. We pride ourselves on setting the bar, the standard for safety, for services provided, and uh, for quality of product. And I think that those are good things to hang your hat on. We uh, just earlier today uh, had an address from our CEO from Germany to express his kind regards to four employees that will be retiring this year and uh, some with as much as 43 years of service. Wow. So I think that speaks highly of the company that uh, you, you get quality people in, uh, they, they stay with us, we try to treat everybody fairly and uh, we do a good job of that I do believe. So, yeah that's great, that's yeah. great. Awesome. So um, the thing that we wanted to talk about with you today is obviously Dagish America is a manufacturer or supplier of uh, metal phosphide products, which phosphine. And, you know, phosphine's been around for a long time. It's an absolutely terrific fumigant. So I wanted to pick your brain about phosphine in particular. Um, this whole season on this podcast, that's all we're talking about is fumigation and how it works and some of the products that, that we work with. And so I wanted to get an opportunity to talk to you because uh, you're definitely a veteran when it comes to the fumigation world. You're, you're so, being kind. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you uh, and just pick your brain a little bit about phosphine because uh, even though it's been around for a long time, uh, we still get a lot of questions, especially from new fumigators about phosphine. Uh, and so I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit. So, I mean, I'll just jump right in. I sure. think one of, the, one of the biggest questions that we get asked is, uh, I mean, how does phosphine work and, and why does it work so well? Well, uh, it's a really quite unique compound. I, uh, people are always asking me that, that we're certainly outside of this world of, uh, of phosphine and, and metal phosphide fumigant use, that uh, you know, what is it that you do? And it's, it's hard to explain, but yet it's simple to explain. I mean, we protect the food and consumer use products that are out there, and we do that through a very unique uh, set of chemistry. The metal phosphides, of course, uh, work through hydrolysis and reaction with atmospheric moisture. And whether, depending on aluminum or magnesium, uh, basically the process is pretty much the same. Some react, the magnesium acts a little quicker. But the phosphine that's produced is quite effective on all life stages of stored product insects and also other stored product pests. So it leaves no residue, which is, which is good. And so it's, it, it touches a lot of lives many different ways. You know, I usually compare the bowl of Cheerios that uh, would not have phosphine as an effective use pattern. You'd be eating them with a knife and fork. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be chasing them around the bowl. So your, your wheat products and uh, things of that nature, uh, we touched your lives without you knowing it. And 
we like it that way. The idea is that we, we're, we're not looking to make press. These are very dangerous compounds. They're restricted use pesticides. The, uh, the gas is quite active and very effective given the right concentrations. And the three parameters we always go by is the concentration versus the time of exposure at uh, the correct temperature levels, uh, which certainly affects the metabolism of the insect, uh, are very, very important components. And those three pieces are what drives the effective use of our products. And so with that thought in mind, we've covered a lot of commodity around the world, even, even from the U.S. with export products, export grains going to other countries and in transit fumigations. Yeah, and uh, one thing I want to mention, of course, this is the first fumigant that we're actually talking about on this season. You know, we're going to talk uh, about sulfurofluoride, methyl bromide as well on some future uh, episodes. But with this being the first one, I, I wanted to ask you first, or, or at least make a comment, the thing that makes fumigants uh, unique. There's a lot of different things that make fumigants unique compared to other pest right. control products, but one of the things that makes it the most unique to me is its penetrative quality. Yes. Uh, so we can use this on food commodities and it can penetrate down into the grain mass safely, but still be able to kill the insects in areas where your standard pest control products can't. Correct, correct. I mean, it's a very small molecule, as I said earlier, and it's very, very active. So uh, it wants to go to places where it isn't, right. uh, which is also one of the characteristics that uh, we use to our advantage, but can also be a disadvantage, because without proper sealing, then you can't maintain the concentrations or the, uh, for the, the target species that you're after. So uh, yes, very, very good penetrating capabilities, characteristics, just ever so slightly heavier than air. I compare it basically to cigarette smoke or charcoal smoke, I mean, just if you want a vis visualization, not an exact comparison, but, but very close. It uh, doesn't really require uh, air assistance uh, in most instances, but we always have uh, the option for mechanical assistance to the J system by recirculation, but that's probably saved for another podcast. Right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm a big fan of the J system. I've used the J system my entire career. I, you know, I'm a Midwest boy. I grew up with the Corn Belt. I've done thousands of grain fumigations <laughs> with metal phosphides. And yes, the J systems work fantastic when you need recirculation. I can't say enough about that. Another question I get asked a lot too, or I think is a big topic for the industry is a lot of folks, they don't understand what the difference is well, they understand what the difference is between aluminum phosphide and magnesium phosphide, but they don't really, or they may not understand where each of them should should be used and what those, why those differences make them better for one particular fumigation as compared to another one. So can you just talk a little bit about the differences between aluminum phosphide and magnesium phosphide? Sure, well, the ALP products are aluminum phosphide press compounds. They come in a couple of different forms. We have a package form as well, but I, I think what you're referring to is maybe the pellets versus the tablets. Yeah. Uh, the pellets are one-fifth the size of a tablet. The tablet uh, releases uh, one full gram of phosphine per tablet. And of course, being that the pellet takes five pellets to make a tablet, then do the math. Yeah, one-fifth. That's one-fifth, <laughs> one exactly correct. So uh, traditionally, the aluminum compounds are used uh, where you can do direct addition of product without fear of the residual dust coming in contact in areas where it's not allowed per the label. Of course, the label is the law. 
and uh, it does react a little bit slower. The hydrolysis process with aluminum phosphide is slower, so uh, it can be, that can carry its own advantages as well, particularly if you're Midwest farm boy climbing the side of a, <laughs> yeah. a bin on a, a nice hot August day and you're trying to do an application without having to wear an SCBA, then yeah. of course that, uh, that would allow you that opportunity. But the magnesium compounds tend to uh, what we call uh, liberate the phosphine gas quicker due to the nature of the chemical compounds that make it up. So that can also have its advantage in, uh, in a quicker rise to uh, lethal concentrations and uh, shorten with the total uh, application times. So, and what I mean by that basically is that, you know, I can reach, I can achieve the levels where I know I'm going to begin to see efficacious results quicker than I can with the aluminum compound. Right. But I think that uh, they, all, they all have their place. And uh, as I said, we have the Aluminum press compounds, they also come in a packaged or prepackaged product. And I think um, hopefully most of the listeners uh, are familiar with the, with the prepacks. Uh, and I think that they, they were designed to allow us to get the products, the prepacks, into a material mass and be able to extract them from the uh, mass being fumigated or the structure being fumigated without leaving the residual compounds behind. Right. And the, the residuals that are left, if, if properly exposed, uh, they're considered to be a special waste. They're not a hazardous waste. There's a huge distinction between oh, yeah. those two. And so, uh, you know, you, with the aluminum compounds, you have basically aluminum hydroxide or talc, talcum powder left, and magnesium phosphide leaves and magnesium hydroxide. So uh, basically the, the, the pretty benign compounds that are left and, and materials that are found in the earth. But uh, you know, we can certainly handle disposal through a couple of different ways, and all these things are outlined in the manual. And the, when I say manual, I'm referring to not only the product or container label, but the applicator's manual, which is an extension of the container label. Right. And so, uh, it's, uh, so when I say label, I'm talking about all twenty odd pages. <laughs> yeah. But you can't stick that on the outside of a flask or a or a pail or what sure. have you. Sure. So. Yeah, the thing that uh, I find the most interesting, and this is the, and I guess this is the, and I'm glad that you said everything that you say because I agree 100%, of course. But you you made a point to mention, uh, you know, the thing about I, the question I get a lot of times is people say, well, why wouldn't I just always want to use magnesium phosphide if it's faster? Because faster is always better, and that's not the case. That's correct. Sometimes slower is better. So I'm really glad that you addressed that and that you gave a scenario where slower may be better. Uh, because slower reacting means that you may not have to use the same level of PPE during the application process. And that's important in a lot of cases. So yes. I'm definitely glad that you addressed that. Because that's a question that we get asked a lot, you know, because I think people in our industry have this preconceived notion that faster always equals better. And I don't think that that's the case at all. No. Slow and steady wins the race, in my opinion, when it comes to safety. And if you can achieve the same results with aluminum phosphide in a safer way because it's slower, 
I think that that's going to be your best option. So you have to weigh out these options, everybody, and make sure that you're taking that time into consideration and not always think that getting it done faster is always going to be the best option. That's the big takeaway that I got right. from that. So right. I'm definitely well, glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, you know, a lot of the drive behind that is, of course, you know, your, your customer, of course, is uh, always wanting something done yesterday. Yeah. And then yeah. they want it back uh, the day before yesterday. Yeah. But uh, you, you, you cannot rush this process. And as I said, you know, again, the, the three main factors are time, temperature, and concentration. So uh, if you can't achieve those uh, parameters, then there's no need to even bother to fumigate. Yeah. Because you're wasting your time, your effort, your money. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, because these are really dangerous uh, compounds that we're working with, I mean, that's their intended use. They're supposed to be dangerous. They're used to kill insects. So, But because they're dangerous, it's really important that we uh, monitor, not just for personal safety, but we also want to make sure, you, I mean, you yourself said that these, these molecules move fast. They always want to try to get to places that they're not. Right. Even, and that's why taping and sealing is so important. So. To me, monitoring for safety and then also monitoring monitoring for efficacy are just extremely vital to guaranteeing that you're actually having a safe and efficacious fumigation. So why, I guess I kind of answered this question already, but I'll ask you anyway. <laughs> so why is it important? Why do you think it's important for us to monitor for efficacy when we're fumigating with phosphine? Well, you know, I, I've said this before in front of uh, multitudes of people over the course of my many, many years, but uh, if you're not monitoring, then you have no idea what the concentration is. So all you're doing is a application of phosphate. Right. You're, you're not fumigating. You're just applying phosphate. You don't know the, uh, the, the result because you don't have any concentration readings. And just because you have a theoretical number, based on uh, your calculations uh, to figure dosages, unless you're monitoring, actually physically monitoring the interior of, of whatever it is you're fumigating, whether it be a tarpaulin or, or a chamber or a warehouse or what have you, then you don't know what that concentration is. And without that piece of knowledge, then you can't understand what it is you're trying to achieve. And you're trying to achieve uh, whatever X is. Uh, uh, you start time zero at X, whether it be 200, 300 parts, whatever your, your target is, parts per million. And then that's when the clock starts. So that's where you begin your time. But before all that, you've already taken temperature. So you're doing all types of monitoring. You're, not, you're, yeah. you're monitoring for phosphine. You're monitoring for temperature. And, uh, and you're watching the clock. So uh, without all this information gathered, then you can't possibly be doing a fumigation. All you've done is a phosphine application. Right, yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. I do wanna add something, and I know you'll agree with me on this. Another thing that I think that makes monitoring so important for efficacy, um, I mean, for safety, of course, hands down, you have to yeah, monitor oh gosh, for safety. Yes. But monitoring for efficacy from a litigious perspective, I think is vital as well. Um, one of the phrases that I hear from Dagish America uh, that I've heard for all the years that I've known of the company and worked with you guys is, if you don't document it, it didn't happen. That's correct. And I absolutely love that phrase because it's 100% true and accurate. If you can't prove you did it by documentation, then you have no, then there's no proof that you did anything at all or that you were successful. And you have to be able to document these monitoring readings. If you don't document them and for some reason, the facility or the treated space gets a reinfestation, 
you don't have anything to fall back on to prove whether or not you were successful. And if you can't prove that, you're in big trouble. You're either going to repeat the fumigation for free or for a reduced rate, or there could be litigious things that come up. That's correct. I mean, fumigation management plans and, and monitoring readings are pulled up into the court of law, not frequently, luckily, because we do a good job of monitoring. <laughs> but it I does can speak for us. Yes, yes. yes. But yes, it does do. happen <laughs> occasionally. So and it, you, the last thing you ever want to do is have to get on a stand in a court of law and have them ask you, did you monitor? Uh, for efficacy and to say no because the whole case is done and over with right at that point. So well, you have I, to monitor to protect yourself as well. As you as you uh, rightly point out, I mean the 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 FMP or the fumigation management plan is a required written document. Yes. It, it is part of the label, and it is federal law. So uh, uh, without these areas being documented properly, as you also said, not only just from an IH standpoint. From, a, from an efficacious standpoint, then you can't fill in the blanks, so you're basically violating the label. Yeah, absolutely. So without it, and you know, and more and more, uh, not so much now, but uh, more in the past, where people have called and said, "Hey, your product doesn't work," and the very first question I normally ask is, "Well, what were your readings?" And when the, they either hang up. <laughs> or, or I hear, or I hear nothing but, si uh, but silence on the yeah. phone, uh, or oh, I got some. Then you say, well, if you don't mind, can you share your FMP with me? Yeah. That way, I can help you go through, and we, we can hopefully identify some areas that we uh, might be able to address better to uh, to give you a, a more positive results. So uh, that usually starts a whole other conversation. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. All right, so I, I mean, you know, we, we already said phosphine's been around for a long time yes. and it's been massively successful the entire time it's been around. However, there have been some discussions over the last several years about, about insects becoming resistant yes. to phosphine. So I just wanted to kind of pick your brain and kind of ask you a little bit about what phosphine resistance is and then just maybe pick your brain and ask you, you know, some questions on uh, how we combat phosphine resistance and keep that molecule viable into the future years. Right. Well, you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk over many, many years, actually even uh, back in the uh, mid to late 60s about uh, insect uh, pesticide resistance. And uh, I think the more I've heard, the more I've tried to educate myself and realize that certainly there's a huge difference between tolerance and resistance. Yeah. And uh, the, many, many uh, organisms become tolerant to multitudes of, uh, of chemical stress, whether it be bacteria to antibiotics or whether it be uh, pesticides to insects. And the, this tolerant capability uh, is different from species to species and even within the species. As, uh, as I always point out, you know, we're all like snowflakes. Everybody's, <laughs> everybody's a little different. And there's no, uh, and that, theory applies into the, uh, into the uh, animal world as well. But the tolerance, I think, has helped lend itself to pick out the easier to, uh, to eradicate and leaving the stronger to survive. And I think in turn that that has led to some resistant capabilities. And I, I normally refer to them as uh, susceptible and non-susceptible. <laughs> sure. It's just I like a that. It's a fancier way of saying it. <laughs> I like but, that, uh, but uh, but basically, and yes, I mean resistance uh, has has become more and more to the forefront. There's been a lot of work that's been done on it, 
There, uh, there have been uh, uh, some identifications of some mechanisms within uh, certain uh, species that allow them to detoxify the chemical when it's uh, when it's in there. So you're getting down to the, you know, the micro level of this stuff. We won't get into too much of that, <laughs> mainly because I'm not capable of talking about it. But uh, when you find that these animals are able to metabolize the the phosphine and, and it's not toxic to them, then I think the tolerance has led to the genetic mutation, which truly is a resistant capability to to pass along those genes. Right. So I've kind of talked in circles around this, but uh, I think that it goes without saying that the two are certainly related. The more I read, the more I see that uh, it's not incorrect to say that tolerance may very well lend itself to resistance, that you have to have uh, both components. You have to have the tolerance component to lead itself to resistance. And this, I, I'm certainly not uh, a, a scientist that is capable of even addressing those scenarios. But as I said, I've been trying to educate myself more and more with the literature that's out there, and uh, this is what we're seeing. You have to have the tolerance first before you'll go on to the resistance. Right, right. And the thing that I find that's interesting is, I mean, of course, the knee-jerk reaction, which is almost never the correct response, right. the knee-jerk reaction is to just switch to a different chemical. And I don't, think that that's ne I don't think that's the right answer to that. And I'm glad that our industry, there's a many, many scientists and professionals in our industry that are working on alternative methods of using phosphine to continue to keep that molecule effective, even against phosphine-resistant strains. I think we're able to change our, our application methods, right. maybe our hold times, um, maybe uh, our uh, application levels, you know, the parts per million that we're setting up, yeah, target yeah. concentration. So I think there's a lot of things that we're doing to show that phosphine is still extremely viable across the board. And that's the thing I like about our industry is, you know, even though we're seeing some tolerance and resistance, we're finding new and innovative ways to continue to use this molecule and be very successful with it. Right, right, exactly. I mean, and, and you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean. Uh, we've been privileged, uh, Degish America has been privileged to be part of a science group uh, that's been based mainly in the world with tobacco. It's called Caresta, and they have done exhaustive work over uh, different uh, treatment schedules and what's most effective and so forth, uh, targeting, you know, methodology for the, the non-susceptible species mm. of insects, particularly their bug of interest is the uh, cigarette beetle. But uh, there's been a great deal of work and, and uh, uh, dependent upon the temperature again and the uh, concentration, the, then also then the time factor comes in. So there's several different treatment schedules that are available and the science that's been done is good, strong, sound science. The tobacco industry has led the way in that. And uh, even to the point where USDA has, uh, has picked up uh, some of those treatment schedules and put them in their PPQ manual. So, and speaking of USDA, I mean, there's a, a, a lot of research done out in the in California uh, by some very good scientists, a very good group of people that have identified the fact that yes, we can control the strong non-susceptible species uh, of many different types of insects. With and they refer to it as the sweet spot. That but, was the uh, next thing I was going to ask about. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'll we'll give credit where. Credit is due. Dr. Spencer Waltz uh, has, and his team have done a great deal of work and have shown that given the right circumstances with the right parameters, temperature, and then the proper concentration with the right amount of time, we can control the 
non-susceptibles. It's just a matter of making sure that we put together a proper fumigation management plan, <laughs> sure. and then we follow our own plan. Yes, and so, yes. And, and that we monitor. Yes. <laughs> so uh, all, all the important factors. Yeah, so speaking of the sweet spot, you know, again, we talked, I, I mentioned earlier that, I, you know, faster's not always better. And I'll say uh, the same thing with regards to the sweet spot. The higher uh, concentration rate isn't always better That's either. Correct. Really, there's a sweet spot for phosphine across the board for most insects. Um, oh, and by the way, before we get too much into this, I do also want to say this uh, before I lose my train of thought. You know, we talked about phosphine, susceptible, non-susceptible insects. I don't want to give anybody the wrong impression. This isn't a widespread issue. It's not like we have correct. wide swaths of uh, non-susceptible insects in the United States. I mean, we're talking about a very narrow band of insects. So I don't want to make it sound uh, like phosphine doesn't work <laughs> because all these insects are becoming non-susceptible. That's not the case at all. We're talking about a very, very narrow field of insects where we're starting to see some of that. So what I would suggest for folks to do if they suspect that they may have some non-susceptible strains is to contact us or contact somebody else and we'll, we can have a discussion and talk through it and communicate and figure out whether or not that's the case. Again, making sure is the, is the first step. Sure, and this is why we stress the fact of, as you said earlier, sealing, uh, sealing up a structure mm -hmm. or, or, a, or a tarpaulin and what have you is so, so important to get those concentrations where they need to be and maintain those concentrations. Yep. And so, again, you can't do it without monitoring. And if you don't monitor, you have no idea what's uh, what's going on within the within a given uh, structure. Yeah. So, what is the sweet spot then? Well, as it <laughs> as it's been defined to me in the, through the the literature, we're we're looking at about, uh, and I'm just going to throw the number out there, but it doesn't have to be exact, but somewhere around 750 ppm of phosphine. Uh, okay. It could go in the in the 500 range, but then the, of course you have to be real, real careful with uh, maintaining. You don't want to get down below that, and you don't need to go super duper high. I mean, more gas doesn't make them more dead. Matter of fact, you can have just the uh, a deleterious effect um, by you know creating um, a narcotic effect, which is uh, you know it's a whole other set of circumstance. But uh, it appears that uh, Dr. Walsh and his group have identified that magic number of 750 parts per million. Yeah, and I, I, that's a nice, good number. Right. Um, I've had many, many successful phosphine fumigations with metal phosphides at 750 parts per million. Uh, so I, I definitely agree with, with Dr. Walsh on that. Right. That's a very good number. Now you mentioned what, you briefly mentioned what happens if you go above that. Um, number and just for those of you who are listening, uh, I please correct me if I'm wrong, but I would liken it almost to like a hibernation. Yes. The insects they they almost sense that they're being uh, exposed to something extremely deadly, so they shut down almost at a metabolic level. Is that is that that's, correct? That's that's correct. Okay. That's correct. Yeah, and they just go into a narcosis, and so I mean when when they shut down, they're not up, there's no uptake. Right. Of, of gas, and of course, if they don't get the uptake of gas into their system, then virtually it's ineffective at that point. But uh, that being said, though, I mean, it's, it's still there's there's a lot of work being done, a lot of work still that needs to be done. There'll always be uh, amazing phenomena in the insect world for sure. But, oh yeah, uh, and insects are such amazing creatures that yes. they can even do something like that. Uh, 
to to drop into that narcosis state when they're when they're kind right. of quote sensing some kind of a danger to them. So it's just interesting. Uh, insects are really interesting when it comes to that. So I don't have too much left for you now. <laughs> I've, I've bothered you enough, but you haven't bothered um, me. Uh, I just want uh, I, everybody that I interview or that I talk to for this podcast. I always like to ask them this because we're starting to see, at least right now, this is 2020. We're starting to see this transition where a lot of the fumigators in the industry are starting to retire, and we're starting to see this transition of new fumigators coming into the market more and more. And I think that's going to uh, continue at least over the next three three to five years or so. Um, as we start transitioning into this new breed of fumigator or, or this new wave of fumigators. Um, so I want to ask you, um, what kind of advice would you give a new fumigator fresh to the industry? They may not even have a fumigation license yet. Somebody that's brand new to the industry, what advice, and it can be more than one piece, but what advice would you give to that brand new fumigator just starting out? Well, interesting question. Uh, as I said earlier, in the very first part of this, I did, I, I didn't start out to become a fumigator myself. <laughs> right. I, uh, I I went to college to uh, to uh, get a just a, a general biology degree and, and figure out what I could do with it from there. But it evolved into this, and I I, I realized that uh, to be a fumigator, you have to want to be a fumigator. You don't just they they don't hang on trees. <laughs> there's there's no uh, university for fumigators yet, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But it's a it's an evolving process. So without the uh, the the thirst for the knowledge of the industry and without the self motivation of wanting to be out into that uh, into that world where you work long hours, they're usually off hours, they're usually holidays, they're all the things that most people go, well, gee, why would you want to do that? Because you have to want to. It has to push your mind forward to say, I'm doing something meaningful. I am a, an essential component uh, of which this industry is. It's an essential industry in order to protect the food supply chains for all of the globe. So what we do here in the United States uh, certainly has an effect on what happens around the globe. Many, many eyes are upon the U.S. Uh, particularly because we are so diligent in what we do and we are uh, certainly passionate at what we do and we like to make sure that the, the bar remains high and that we have this product for many, many years to come. Yes, I like that answer. That's yeah. a nice answer. So. Yeah, and I agree. We, we do protect the world's food supply. And that's very important. Yeah. So. It's essential. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a lot of pride in a job well done. It's a very unique industry, and I'm, I'm very proud to be part of it. Yep. So. All right, well, Herb, that's all I had for you. I really appreciate you <laughs> taking some time to talk to me today. Thanks. I want to thank Herb Yeaman for discussing the continued use of phosphine in the U.S. I think it's interesting that we've managed to keep a molecule like phosphine viable and effective for so many years. And it sure looks like it will continue to be that viable option for many years to come. Next time, we'll dive into another fumigant available on the market, methyl bromide. And I think that episode will be extremely interesting as there are a lot of restrictions to its use. In the meantime, if you have any questions at all about this episode's topic or any other questions relating to the industry, please make sure to reach out to us. You can find us at degishamerica.com or on all of the main social media outlets. And you can also feel free to email us at info at And so, until next time, 
I'm Ben Harl, and I hope you have a safe and terrific day.